For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You may be seated. Thanks, brother. All right. Good morning. Good morning. I want to welcome you all once again to Central Baptist Church. It's really good to be gathered with you all this morning. Uh, for those of you who I don't know yet, my name is Carson. I'm a member here at Central Baptist Church. Thankful for this opportunity to, uh, to be with you this morning and to get to open God's Word together. Um, if you would, if you do not have a bulletin in front of you, would you just raise your hand and Garrett will help uh, get you a bulletin. You'll want to have one in front of you. Those were a little slow. Uh, getting out this morning, but want to say a special thanks to Eden Nelson. While we were all mingling and getting started this morning and singing, she was back there folding bulletins, making sure that everybody that wanted one uh, had a bulletin. So if you get a chance to just say thank you to her after the service, let her know you appreciate her. Um, Dylan and Rachel, thank you guys for being here with us this morning. Thank you for your ministry. We're, we're so encouraged by, by you guys. Um, I don't know if you all noticed it when you woke up this morning. But there is a spirit of excitement in Kansas City today. Some might try to explain this away by Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs hosting their fifth consecutive AFC championship, but I assure you that that's not it. This morning in Kansas City at Central Baptist Church, we are rounding out our series on the five solas, and that is exciting. So, uh... If you've been with us the last several weeks, the five solas are a set of five doctrinal convictions that were at the center, at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the Protestant Reformation was about 500 years ago where there were uh, individuals reading the Word of God that were observing the church culture around them and saying, there's something that needs to change. I've heard it said that a doctrine is properly a doctrinal conviction, not just when we believe that it's true, but when we know why, the truth of that doctrine matters. So it's a conviction not just because we know that it's true or we think that it's true, but we have an understanding of why this is important. Brothers and sisters, these doctrines, the five souls, matter. To be clear, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, these guys, they didn't call these things that they talked about the five solas. They just called them the gospel. They weren't concerned with branding a set of statements that would start a movement. They were simply gripped with conviction about the doctrine of the gospel. The gospel, which according to Romans 1, 16, was just read for us, is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. These doctrines matter because they outline the central message of the Bible. Not just Protestant Reformation, but of biblical Christianity. These doctrines put forward the gospel itself. These five doctrines together proclaim that the gospel, according to Scripture alone, is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It was encouraging to me, for me to hear as uh, different guys were praying this morning the way that these doctrines have filtered their way into the language of our prayers. It's a good and healthy thing for us. Uh, but take these doctrines one at a time. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, says that Scripture alone is the inspired and errant and authoritative Word of God that is unrivaled by any other opinion or tradition of man. 
Sola gratia, grace alone, it means that God's grace alone, not human merit, is the source of our salvation. Solus Christus, that Jesus Christ alone is the mediator between God and his people, and there is no one else that needs to stand between us. Soli Deo Gloria, that God alone is deserving of the credit, honor, and glory for the salvation of man. And finally today, we get to wrap up this series with sola fide, faith alone. That salvation is through faith alone and not by works. CBC, not every doctrinal disagreement is worth dividing over. But our fathers in the faith held that these ones are. Not every doctrine is worth dying for, but our fathers in the faith held that these ones are. This is exactly why Paul proclaims in Romans 1, 16, I'm, I'm not ashamed. These doctrines are worth it. My purpose statement this morning is to ground our conviction in the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. Namely, that it is true and that it is worth our lives. With that, I'll pray for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we, we, we have heard this gospel from your word. Lord, many of us have put our, our faith in you, trusting that our faith in your work is our one means, our one hope of salvation. God, I pray that you would remind us of that truth this morning, that you would wash over us with that truth this morning. Um, God, that, that your glory would shine brightly, springing up forth from your word. God, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, drawing us closer to you refining us, refining our minds and our hearts and our actions to be glorifying to you. I see things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get started this morning, I want to point you to that outline that's in your bulletin. Uh, at the top of that, you will see a definition. The definition for the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, as, as I understand it. The salvation by faith alone is this conviction that salvation, namely the forgiveness of sin and justification before God, is obtained by faith, that is conscious trust, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and not by any other means of will, work, or merit. Said more simply, this conviction is that salvation comes through faith and nothing else. We'll get to that outline that's on the rest of that page in just a minute, but I want to stop uh, for, for these first few minutes and just consider the doctrine itself. And to help us do that, let's dig into this scripture in Romans 1, verse 17, our, our core text, which is already read for us this morning. So in Romans 1, verse 17, after he proclaims that he is not ashamed of the gospel, that it is the power of God for salvation, he gives the reason why. Why, Paul? Why is this gospel so important? He says in verse 17 that in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Some say that this verse is the very verse that started the Protestant Reformation. The reason is that in Luther's own words, this is the verse that led to his conversion. And at the same time, his Conviction that salvation is by faith alone. As Luther, Luther tells it, even prior to his conversion, he was a very upright and religious man. He was a monk in the Catholic Church, very disciplined, morally decent. 
And he had devoted himself intentionally to the lifestyle that he thought would be most pleasing to God. But as he set out one day to study and give a series of lectures over the book of Romans to the parishioners in his area, he uh, could not help but wrestle with this phrase. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In his own words, he said, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. I stumbled because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unrighteous. In another place, Luther calls this phrase, the righteousness of God, the roadblock that kept him from salvation. Why, you might ask? Luther said, my situation was this. Although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would satisfy God. Therefore, I did not love the righteous and angry God, but rather I hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to this dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. You see, Luther's question was, exactly what does this verse mean when it says the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? His first instinct was to assume that Romans 1.17 was referring to the righteousness of God himself that was revealed. That is, God's perfect justice. Those two words are interchangeable. Uh, justice and righteousness, especially in uh, the writings of the Reformation. He was saying that in the gospel, he understood that God's justice was being revealed. And this much is true. At the cross of Christ, God's justice was clear. The wrath of a holy God was poured out on Christ as our substitute. This was an act of divine justice. But, if you think about it, if demonstrating God's justice was the only purpose, the cross was not necessary, right? God's righteousness and justice had already been displayed for the law. In the law, for example. In the law, he demanded perfect obedience. His righteousness and justice were demonstrated in judgment when he punished the guilty. If demonstrating righteousness and justice were the only purpose, the cross was not necessary. That's why Luther said, I did not love this God. In fact, I hated him. I was terrified of God. Looking back to Pastor Jesse's sermon this last week, that makes sense. Entering the presence of God is a scary prospect when we are aware of our own sin. Sinners should not want to stand in the presence of a righteous God. So, if this is the sense of righteousness that Paul is talking about in Romans 1.17, it's not very good news. But, there was something in the way that Paul spoke about this that captured Luther's attention. Because in Romans 1.17, this phrase, the righteousness of God, was paired with words like, life. The word faith. Again, in his own words, he explained, night and day I pondered this until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the righteous shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God means that righteousness by which through faith and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. 
Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. I've got to admit, it took me several times to read in that quote to understand what he meant. But here's the point. The righteousness of God that is uniquely revealed in the gospel is not the fact that God himself is righteous. That much was already clear. What Paul is saying in Romans 1.17 is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is made available. It's accessible through faith. Though we, by nature, are weighed down with sin and guilt and all unrighteousness, there is a way to be clothed in the righteousness of God so that we may walk into his presence with a clear conscience and live. As it is written, the righteous shall live. By what means? By faith in Christ. The gospel reveals that the righteousness of God is available by faith. Furthermore, this is the only means. It's universal. There's not one pathway for some to get to God and another pathway for others. This is the way, the only way. Righteousness by faith. Verse 16 says, to the Jew and also to the Greek. Salvation is by faith. For Jews, it was by faith. For Gentiles, it was by faith. For Abraham, it was by faith. For us today who believe, it is by faith. Salvation is by faith and faith alone. There is no other means. This has been the message of the law and the prophets all along. But now it has been fully revealed through the gospel and that is why I'm not ashamed to proclaim it. A couple chapters over in Romans 3, you can hear the eagerness in Paul's voice when he says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The law and the prophets testified to it, but now this righteousness has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He talks in Philippians 3.9, he says, I consider everything I had a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've lost all things. I considered them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having some righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's by faith I am redeemed. By faith I am restored. And now I freely walk into the arms of Christ my Lord. If we believe this doctrine, if we trust God's word in the example of our forefathers in the Reformation, we will not just believe that this doctrine of salvation by faith alone is true. We'll have the conviction that it matters. With the remainder of our time this morning, I want to start into that outline that's in your bulletin and walk us through three implications. Three fruits of the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. Three reasons why clarity of understanding on this doctrine matters. So three fruits of the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. The first one, fruit number one, is humility. Humility. A right understanding of salvation by faith alone leads to humility. When it says in Romans 1, verse 17, that the righteous shall live by faith, this ought to humble us. This is to say that faith alone is the means 
of our salvation. To say that is to say that the only thing that we contribute, that we can contribute to our salvation is a helpless gaze upon another. A desperate ask for the help of another. A trust in the strength and the sufficiency of another. It's not an act of our own first initiative, but an act of response to the saving initiative of Christ. Like Lazarus coming up from the grave. I'd suggest that it requires a great deal of humbling to accept this message. Immediately, uh, immediately following the, the mountaintop verses that we just read in Romans 3, verse 21, that, that say that justification is available by grace as a gift to be received by faith, Paul follows up with this question in Romans 3, verse 27. He says, so what becomes of our boasting then? It is excluded. It doesn't make sense anymore. Similarly, over in Ephesians 2.8, this beautiful passage where Paul proclaims that we have been saved by grace through faith, he says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is of the kind that we cannot boast in ourselves for. We are recipients we're like children, like those who've been given a gift. That's why Luther went on his deathbed, asked if he still held to this doctrine. He said, we are beggars. This is true. And I would suggest that this point is the primary reason that many people reject the gospel. It forces the hand on our humility. Because we're a proud people. So we insist that the key must be something more practical than this. Like the rich young ruler, we want God to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? In a conversation not long ago with someone close to me, I was explaining, that this, I was explaining this doctrine that salvation is given to those who have faith in Christ. It's not an outward work. It's an internal heart posture towards the person of Christ. His response was, that's impractical. How do you know if you've actually accomplished it? Brothers and sisters, in our flesh, we desperately want to be the authors of our own salvation. We want to be able to measure the work that we have done to see how we stand in the rankings. By nature, we want to sing songs not of God's grace, but of our merit. Not of faith, but of our works. Not of the glory of God in the person of Christ, but that of our own strength and accomplishment. And this is why that every belief system that originates from this world is built the way it is. Every man-made religion, every man-centered philosophy, all prize individual accomplishment is the key to compensation. And you've seen how these strategies come about. 
Our hearts constantly try to find some means of getting a good standing for ourselves, be it circumcision or confession or pillars or steps or knowledge or initiative or overcoming our own sin or doing this or that or any other of countless means that we can manufacture to try to gain some good standing before God with our pride intact. That explains the following quote by uh, author William Gernall, a Puritan. He says, The doctrine of justification by faith has had more assaults against it than any other teaching in Scripture. Indeed, many other doctrinal errors were but the enemy's approach to undermine this one. You see, this doctrine is the doctrine that is distinctly Christian. Nobody else in the world wants to touch it. This doctrine is the object of all our own fleshly hostility. Why? Because in this doctrine, God tells us clearly that we are not good enough. That we have a problem that we cannot solve on our own. That we need him. And I'll continue this thought by saying... Even when Satan cannot hide this truth, he will work to hinder the practical application of it. Thus, you see Christians who speak in defense of justification by faith, and yet their attitude and actions contradict their profession. Brothers and sisters, let's be careful. Even those of us who profess that we believe this doctrine along with the other of the five solas, might tend to functionally deny them. What would that look like? In a really twisted way, it's possible for us to look at faith as a feat that we have accomplished. Look at me. I believe the gospel. I've been able to humble myself. If only you guys could have believed and be as humble as me. If only you lost people in the world could have as much faith as I do. Yikes. I've got to tell you all, I've had thoughts like that before. We will be prone to treat faith as if it was a feat that we have accomplished when we forget the source of our faith. To help us avoid this error, let us Remember this truth. This is in your notes. Faith is not a feat. F-E-A-T. Faith is not a feat, but a response to God's faithfulness. And if we grasp this correctly, it will foster humility in our hearts. And humility and faith before God will go well for you. If we get this, we will be the kinds of people who wake up morning by morning, humbled and hungry for God to provide us with our daily bread. Our daily bread, which is a glimpse upon the face of Christ, who is alone our hope and our salvation. Our source of strength and our confidence. This will not give us only humility, but also great security. That is the second fruit of this doctrine, security. A right understanding of salvation leads to security. Come with me back to Romans 1, verse 17. And this quote from Habakkuk 2, it says, The righteous shall live by faith. 
The words shall live carry the force of a promise. Once spoken by God, the person who has faith shall live. God has guaranteed it. Over in Romans chapter 4, verse 16, he says, talking about salvation, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. It rests on, or it depends on faith so that it might rest on grace and so that it will be guaranteed to you. So that you might have a good reason to be secure. To contrast, if the promise of God were to rest on our own merit, we would live turbulent and fragile lives, full of fits and starts, rises and falls, wavering between arrogance and anxiety, with no comfort, no rest, and no security. But God in the gospel has made a means of salvation that enables stability and security for us. How? Our salvation rests not on our own goodness, but faith in the goodness of another. Our hope not, rests not on our own works, but faith in the works of another. Our salvation depends on faith so that it might rest on God's grace so that our future might be guaranteed for us and that we might experience God's peace. I've heard it said several times that uh, Baptists, evangelical Christians talk about the badness of sin too often. And I'll give room to say that there certainly is a helpful way and an unhelpful way to talk about our sinful state, to talk about depravity. At the same time, I, I truly believe that because of God's love for us, he would have us keep the reminder of our sinful state in front of us every day. To back this up, turn with me over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is this uh, glorious passage we've read already where uh, we're told that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. But look how it, that passage starts in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Skip down with me to verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. It's a really good thing for us to remember our sinful state. 
both our former sinful state where we were dead in our trespasses and our current reality of a flesh nature that's still warring against us. Why? Why is that helpful? Certainly first for the sake of our humility towards God and towards other people. And I think that's his primary point here in Ephesians 2. But as a secondary benefit, there will be days where we see our sin clearly crop back up in our life. And we will need to remember what to do with it on those days. Though it pains our pride to hear that the law of righteousness would crush us when laid on our backs, there are days that it's of great comfort to know that the load of our cross has been carried on the back of another. And that though our sins, they are many, his mercy is still more. The remembering of our sin does not end with the intention to make us feel bad about ourselves or ashamed The end of it is to train us to put our confidence in Christ so that we might actually remember to run to him when we need him most. The doctrine of salvation by faith alone is a means of security. I assume that you guys know the kind of days that I'm talking about. I assume I'm not alone in experiencing days where we are overcome by discouragement. When we are acutely aware of our own sin. Days when we know that we have nothing good to offer. Days when we struggle to fight for joy or peace or goodness or anything else that's listed in the fruit of the Spirit. Days when our faith seems to be failing and the basis of our confidence seems to be crumbling quickly. I've been there. Have you? If you haven't, I promise those days will come. And just like in the days that things are going well, it's helpful for us to remember that faith is not a feat that we have accomplished. In those days of darkness, we must remember that faith is not a feeling. It's in your notes. Faith is not a feeling. What I mean by that is faith is not a feeling that you must maintain in yourself. Faith isn't something that you look within yourself to see if you've got enough of it or if it's still there. Faith isn't a feeling. On the contrary, faith is a reason. Faith is a reason for hope and perseverance, even on the darkest of days. Faith is the truth that we tell ourselves when our feelings fight against us. Faith is the fight to lift your eyes up off of our own sinful state to see the face of Christ your Savior. Faith is a reason. A reason to fight for hope. And this matters because, friends, there are many days where our minds must be trained to take control of our hearts. And lift our eyes to see the goodness of God. We must remember that the basis of our confidence is not a feeling. It's not our own work that we can do. The answer is not to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and keep working. The answer is to lift your eyes and see the goodness of God in the gospel. Faith is the reason. 
When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within upward, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This doctrine of salvation by faith alone matters. If we grasp it, we will not fear God's abandonment on dark days. We will not be crushed by the weight of our own sin or failure because we will be trained to lift our eyes and see our Savior and live. We will live. Third fruit of this doctrine. Call it activity. It's the only word that seems to fit. Activity. A right understanding of salvation by faith leads to spiritual action. That is to say that faith is not an end to itself. Finding faith and getting that is not the finish line of the Christian life. Faith has a functional result. Faith leads to something. True faith produces something. What does it produce? In addition to humility and security, it produces spiritual life. This is clear in that phrase in Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. Or the righteous by faith shall have life. The implication that follows is that living things don't act like they're dead. Right? Living things do things that living things do. They are active. This thought is absolutely explained in the book of Romans. But uh, perhaps it's most efficiently explained in the book of James. Turn with me there if you would. You'll, you'll want to see this reference. Over in James chapter 2. We're going to read several verses here. So this one won't be up on the screen. But James chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse 14. James 2 starting in verse 14. says, What good is it, my brothers? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that needed for the body, what good is that? So in the same way, Faith by itself, if it does not have good works, is dead. It's worthless. Some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you by my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe this and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So at first reading, there appears to be a pretty sharp contrast between what James says and the things we've been reading from Paul. 
put these uh, two verses up on the screen just to put them side by side. I'll tell you, believe it or not, these two do not disagree. James and Paul are fighting for the same thing. In a broader context, Paul in Romans and other places speaks of justification by faith apart from works. I'll pick up that thought. At the same time, James speaks of faith that is justifying only if it is accomplished by, only if it's accompanied by works. And they are both fighting to prove and promote the same biblical doctrine of saving faith. So why the difference in the way that they, they say this? Well, Paul was speaking into an audience that valued specific outward forms of religiosity more than the faith that's at the heart of all truly good works. That's what he's campaigning for in Romans. It's not your outward works that have gained you your standing before God, but it's the heart of faith. And this heart of faith is available to Gentiles and those nations to the end of the earth. Will you get on board and partner with me for the advancement of this faith to Spain? James, on the other hand, is speaking into a group that equates saving faith with a mere intellectual assent to doctrine that is disconnected from the heart or belief in word only. It's disconnected from the heart or it's active in belief or in word only. Though they say it quite differently, both are putting forward the essential nature of saving faith, which above all things is a heart posture towards Christ, which leads to life. What James is campaigning for, he's saying, look, faith doesn't stop in your mind. It is in your heart, and that which is in your heart flows outward. It leads to love. We do not say that we have salvation by faith alone to the exclusion of works, but rather that salvation is by the kind of faith that produces works because it is a living faith. Salvation is by the kind of faith that produces works because it is a living faith, not a dead faith. So when we say that salvation is by faith alone, it is not to affirm the salvation of one who makes a verbal profession but whose life shows no clear evidence of a living faith. But on the other hand, when we say faith alone, we are saying that the credit for our salvation is 100% a result of the sacrifice of Jesus and that his work is so sufficient and that our good works are so insufficient that faith alone accesses the benefits that he has purchased by his life, death, and resurrection. What James is saying is that the person of Christ is so glorious, so compelling, and that his spirit is so alive in his people that everyone who comes to Christ will be transformed and will do good works. I know this is, is dense stuff, but I, I think that this is going to be most helpfully divided by looking at Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. If you want to make, ten, uh, make sense of the tension between these two things, Look with me there. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. In that verse, uh, Paul says that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. 
but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. So what's the kind of faith that matters? It's the kind of faith that works through love. 1 Corinthians 13 says something similar. It says, what if I have faith enough to move mountains? If I don't have love, I have nothing. These three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these things is love. The faith that we have results in love. Love towards God and love towards people. That is the only right response that we can have when we have seen our sins nailed to the cross in love for us. Faith leads to love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And it follows. Faith by nature produces fruit. It must. That is its function. In the words of Martin Luther, he says, What a living, creative, active, and powerful thing is faith. It is impossible that faith will ever stop doing good. Faith doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before it is asked, it does them. It is always active. Just to help us put all these things back together, uh, I want to put this article from the Westminster Confession up on the screen for us. Westminster Confession, chapter 11, paragraph 2. Let's, uh, let's read this, this together. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ in his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but by works of love. Faith is... Receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness. Not a righteousness of our own, but that which comes from Christ. This alone is the instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person that's justified. But it always will be accompanied by saving grace, other saving graces. It is not dead faith, but it has works of love. Praise God for that. At the same time, he's saying that the salvation that is offered in Christ says, come as you are. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You do not need to clean your life up before you can have faith in Christ and be saved. And at the same time, for our good, he says that if you have faith in Christ, he will not leave you as you are. Faith is not the finish line, but it is the fuel for works of love. And you notice faith is not the finish line. It is the fuel for works of love. Faith is what spurs on the Christian life, what causes the Christian life to grow. Faith comes to fruition. It bears fruit in love. Love for God and love for other people. So I just want to ask you, 
Does your faith lead you into works of love? This concept of love is, is the concept that I think serves as the best grid to help us distinguish between works that are a fruit of faith and those works that are done in our own strength and for our own glory. The question to ask is, is this work a work of love? For example, why do you fast? Is it because you love God and desire to see your affections for God strengthened? Is it because you desire to see his kingdom come for the joy of all peoples? Or is it because you consider fasting a good work that increases your status as a spiritual person? Why do you pray or read your Bible? Is it because you love God and yearn to know him more and experience fellowship with him? Is it because you desire for your life to be shaped more into his image so that you could be glorifying to God and a blessing to other people? Or is it because you desire to look good in front of others? You can use that grid, the grid of love, for almost any work in the Christian life. Why do you give? Why do you evangelize? Why do you speak? Why do you serve? Why do you show hospitality? Why are you here this morning gathered with us? Are these works traceable to love? I pray they are. Love of God and love for others. Faith is not the the finish line. By that I mean faith is not the the culmination or the last part of the Christian life. It is not the end. It's, It's the beginning and it's the fuel that gives everything that follows. So altogether, faith is not a feat that we accomplish, but it's a response to God's faithfulness. Faith is not a feeling that we must maintain, but it's a reason for hope and perseverance. Faith is not the finish line of the Christian life, but it is the fuel for works of love. Faith is a response to God's faithfulness that gives us reason for hope and perseverance as we work out our faith in love. And we hold that this, that salvation is obtained by this kind of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, and there is no other means. There is no other means of salvation, nor is there another means of sanctification. This is the way of the Christian life. And church, I'd put forward that this is the best conceivable way. This is good stuff because in this doctrine, God lets us know that he has made provision for everything that we need. He has taken the load of the law off of our shoulders and placed it on his own. If we will only humble ourselves in repentance and faith towards the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, for the person who's able to be honest about their sin, there is no better news than this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation if you only believe. Maybe you're here this morning and this is the first time that you're hearing this come through. Salvation requires faith alone and Christ alone and nothing else. The burden of righteousness does not lay on your shoulders to work if you will allow it to rest on Christ. We have the same amount of work to do for our salvation as the dead man Lazarus had to do to wake himself up from the grave. He was powerless to do that on his own, but when he heard the call of Christ, he arose. 
Jesus says in John 6.29, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? If we do, we will turn to him in faith. If we do, he will take responsibility, not only for covering our failures, but for spurring us on into love and good works and to create in us a very real righteousness. And the only part that we have in this work is to fight the fight of faith, to lift our eyes and behold the glory of the most glorious person in the universe. If we will look to him in faith, we will find ourselves caught up in wonder of the God who saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his great glory alone. And we will abound in love and joy and patience and all other kinds of good fruits for the good of the world around us. So in conclusion today, I've got to ask you, are these doctrines that we've talked about a conviction for you? I pray that they are. For those of you this morning who at least internally say yes and amen, those who say that you believe these things are true, I pray that God would help us only to deepen these convictions. And that in every way we would hold tightly to these and that we would learn to apply them in our lives for our good and for God's glory. I'll close with this quote from Luther. Night and day I pondered these things until I saw the connection. Then I grasp that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us, even us, through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. Father, I pray that you would help us in this room to heed that example. God, that we would yearn to know your word. God, that we would ponder it night and day. And that in it we would find the riches of the gospel. God, that our lives would show the marks of conviction. That your salvation is offered to us freely by your grace through faith in Christ and for your glory. Help us, Lord. Help us to be a people who know your word, who love it, and obey it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.